Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Michal Nakmani has dedicated over 12 years of her life to fighting the global climate crisis. She is an internationally recognised climate policy and governance expert. And after a decade of leading the climate policy research team at LSE, Michal set up Climate Policy Radar in May 2021. Only six weeks later, she'd secured two million in seed funding to support her vision of driving the transition to a low carbon, resilient world. Climate Policy Radar are truly unique. They're a not-for-profit, open data startup, leveraging the latest in machine learning and NLP technology to build the world's first global database of climate policy and legislation. And the best part, it's free. So every government and policymaker around the world can make better decisions when it comes to climate change. Hey, Michael, how are you doing? Hey, Craig, I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Thanks for chatting to us today. So I always like to start by delving a bit into the guest background. Um, and I noticed that you studied law, just like myself, actually, but then you actually started out as a project manager, I believe. So I just wondered if you could talk us through your journey into kind of climate and policy. Sure. I started my journey um, and put a lot of good things in my backpack until I figured out what to do with my backpack and with all of the good things that are in it. I studied law, I studied business and finance, I studied energy and environmental management. And then I went and got myself a PhD in climate policy. And all of those things always led me to concentrating on one big question is how do we get people to make better decisions that are actually informed and evidence-based? And I found myself uh, supporting people in uh, business environments, uh, working in uh, the competitive intelligence uh, sector for about a decade. And finally found that Waking up in the morning uh, and doing something just so other people's businesses would thrive is okay, but probably not good enough for me and wanted something uh, better to do with my life. So about 15 years ago, took up the environmental path and studied and started working in a think tank and uh, found myself advising on national greenhouse gas mitigation plans for uh, the Israeli government at the time. And that was a really interesting experience because it really uh, put me inside of the policymaking process and, and really gave me an insight into how people were making decisions and what kind of information do they want when they make those decisions. You know, you're formulating a plan and you're saying, all right, so who did that already? Who's tried that already? And what, you know, how did that work out for them? And increasingly realized that there were, weren't very good answers to answering that question. And I was curious about that. Yeah, and, and my doctoral research were uh, was, was kind of focused on why do countries copy policies one from another? And that led me on an interesting path that uh, about a whole decade later led me to uh, uh, to climate policy radar and to founding, uh, to founding it. Nice. And we will talk about climate policy radar obviously in a second, but yeah. um, some, some broader context questions first. Um, so it sounds like I was going to ask you, did, did kind of the interest in climate come first and then that led you to policy being like the most impactful way you thought you could like have an impact within 
climate or was it the other way like you were attracted to policy and then actually realized that'd be a great way to impact climate climate first uh it was broader it was more broader environmental considerations in the beginning i was i was an expert on waste policy believe it or not and uh policy became evidently a kind of the path that i took knowing what i know now i think that policy is the make or break of everything Everything goes through policy, but policy itself, of course, uh, isn't enough. I mean, policy facilitates, policy, uh, policy blocks uh, new technologies, for example, or new um, um, uh, social uh, dynamics. So if you go through a city, then you, you know, um, do you walk through them? Do you drive through them? Do you cycle through them? These are policy decisions, but without excellent uh, um, uh, um, vehicles and without excellent uh, cycles and without excellent pavements that absorb rainwater so we won't uh, have flooding. Those, so policy decisions are not enough. So they constantly interact with, uh, with technology and with, uh, with other business considerations. And we need all of those. I found myself in policy. Uh, other people will find themselves elsewhere. Everything is great. And you touched on earlier like the, um, the lack of, I'm not quite sure how you phrased it, but like visibility of, of like what other com- like countries are doing at a policy level. Um, so it sounds like you, you noticed like the underinvestment in policy generally quite early on. Yeah, I think being part, you know, kind of witnessing that um, uh, hands-on being in the policymaking process, you, you you kind of get how sometimes anecdotal and siloed these uh, these decision-making processes are. And, you know, you hear something or you hire a consultant or you went to a conference and you heard about three great examples. And often people in the policymaking world just don't have enough time and background. A lot of them are generalists. Um and need to make quick decisions that, you know, th- then the political layer is, you know, slapped on top of that and you need to make it okay for everyone. So it's a really complex world in which, you know, and we're not going to solve the political problems uh, immediately, but by providing people with uh, clear and rigorous information about um, their policy options and the the likelihood of these policy options to actually yield results, um, then potentially we can, um, we can improve some things. I mean, Good data doesn't necessarily lead to good decisions, uh, but bad data necessarily leads to bad decisions. I think that's 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 what we need to remember. Hundred percent. And um, in the kind of tee up to client policy radar, you spent I think close to ten years at Grantham Research Institute, leading a team of researchers um, building the climate change laws of the world. Would you be able just to give an overview of, of what that team that you were leading were doing, and then at what point you realized or, or found it was like the right time to, to actually start and found Climate Policy Radar? Sure. So a long, long time ago, uh, listeners, uh, on the verge of uh, a Copenhagen um, of the Copenhagen COP in 2009, a bunch of parliamentarians got together and said, we really need to learn more about climate policy from each other so we can share our experience um, and learn what works and what doesn't work, and we don't even know. And so they commissioned LSE, the Grantham Research Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at LSE, um, to to find that out. And um, so the the LSE wrote a little booklet and then um, of climate laws in 16 countries uh, and continued writing that as an annual publication. I joined it and uh, and then led the project and uh, brought it to cover all all 200 governments in the world. And and what it was, it was a compendium of all the laws and the policies that all those governments have passed or have uh, have enacted. And that became a resource that today, um, I think, has about a quarter million users globally from, you know, from UN agencies to investors, to companies, to academics, to journalists who 
uh, who need information about the laws and policies that that are there. It's it's a fantastic project, and I'm really proud to have to have led it. But it was coming to uh, to its natural limits because it was in an academic kind of social sciences university that mainly relied on um, taking uh, uh, you know hiring uh, extremely uh, capable uh, research assistants and having them go to countries' websites or setting up Google alerts and you know and finding out what those laws were, and um, and that's really slow and that's really you know that's really cumbersome and we couldn't get to the to the deep insights that we can get to. And um, I was pushing against my own um, impatience of, of 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 getting this to uh, to, to be better. Um, and I mean, it worked. Like we live in an era where uh, big data and machine learning uh, models and natural language processing are exploding, um, especially in the last five years, um, where we really see re like a revolution in, in how natural language processing allows us to digest huge quantities of data. And the question is, why are we stuck with, you know, you know, Googling Angola's climate policy when we can do something a, a little more elegant than that? And then I left LSE and founded Climate Policy Radar, uh, which aims to kind of marry this, uh, this world of need and all of the, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of users who are hungry for data about climate policy with, uh, with technology that will allow us to do it better and faster and deeper and generate insights. Nice. And um, most of the, the founders I speak to, I, I guess, would categorize their businesses as like for purpose and for profit, whereas you specifically set up Climate Policy Data with some quite, um, in terms of like the foundational pillars for me from our conversations have been obviously not for profit, open source data, tech accelerated. Um, you've just kind of touched on the tech accelerated part, but in terms of why you wanted it to be a not for profit and open source data business, can you talk through that? Sure. The climate crisis is not waiting for us. And the climate crisis requires swift action. And swift action is um, enabled by collaboration. And open source, uh, in my opinion, is the fastest way to achieve that collaboration. It's also the safest way to ensure that your models are not biased. Um, a lot is at stake. If we, you know, if we, if our models provide data that say this is the right way to go. Um, we really need those models to be non-biased because we have a global approach. Then you know whatever works for Germany might not really work for Bangladesh. Whatever terms are used in policymaking uh, in Argentina might be used in China very differently. Um, making sure that we're not kind of uh, creating a bias towards anything really uh, um, really requires open source. That's why open source. Why not for profit? Because we know that there's a lot of companies that make a lot of profit from open source, right? There, there's, there's great models for that. But the climate crisis is one that in which the people who need this data the most are the ones who are least able to pay for it. The people who are harmed most by uh, uh, the consequences of climate change are the ones who are uh, the least resourced, and those are the ones who need it. So there's a really strong angle of climate justice here, of uh, providing this to those who need it the most, who are uh, harmed most by, um, by the uh, ridiculous growth that we've had, the disproportional growth to our capacities. And this is our attempt of providing a public good because we believe that anything that is used uh, to fighting rising emissions um, and uh, extreme weather events and rising sea levels is something that should be a global public good and therefore available for free for all. 100%, definitely. 
and uh, you know, as someone who has a fairly limited knowledge of, of not-for-profit businesses, um, when it comes to setting up the company, I, I believe there's a couple of options. You've gone down the CIC route, so community interest company. Um, I just wonder if you could explain, like, what does that mean, and how does that differ from your more kind of like uh, popular limited company setup in the UK? So, a community interest company is a company for for anything. We're registered in Company House. Um, the only thing we don't have is is shares. So, the interest of uh, investors to invest in us so they can have a return on their investment um, via shareholding uh, is removed from the equation. We can make profit. We're very welcome to make profit. No one says that we can't turn a big revenue and make a big profit, except our revenues, uh, or sorry, our profits need to be reinvested in the company. So because we are unlikely to attract VCs because they will not see a return on their investment because that's you know pr- pragmatically impossible, then our first port of call is philanthropy. And at some point in the future, we may um, also take um, adopt some bus- uh, a business model that involves revenue generating uh, in some uh, way or form. I want to emphasize that the base layer uh, of, of the products and of the services will always be free. Uh, so business models, uh, you know, may you know maybe some spin-off analytical products on top of that, and so on. Got it. And to talk about funding for a moment, um, two questions. One is. Um, you managed to secure funding quite quickly. How did you do that? And second question is, you know, if, if another founder was listening or someone was particularly thinking about setting up a CIC and, and going down the not-for-profit route, how does it differ in terms of going to investors for funding? Like who do you target? How does the potentially the pitch differ for those kind of investors versus if you're going to down the more traditional VC route? So we were very fortunate to secure our first round of funding, uh, a f- philanthropic grant that sets us off on about three years um, of, uh, of funding for a team of about 12 people, which was probably helped greatly by the fact that we had a clear articulation of our problem and of our user set uh, from the get-go. Because the project I led at LSC was effectively climate policy radar minus the tech. Um, so we knew the market, we knew the users, we knew what they were uh, needing, we knew what wasn't working for them with the current solutions. And that probably is the greatest uh, challenge of founders and of identifying what is the, what is a real need and, and proving that that need exists. So it's not just I woke up in the middle of the night and had an idea and thought, oh, people might want that. We actually knew that people want that because people have been asking me for it for quite a while. In the last few years, we've seen um, several big actors signing up to fairly large pledges on uh, on the impact front, mainly on climate change. Billions of pounds are being pledged now for climate by people who don't come from the traditional kind of charity sector. Those are people who are tech oriented, who have uh, made their money potentially from tech or from uh, fintech. So their orientation towards tech-driven impact is uh, is significant. They're looking for scalable projects. They're looking for things that can make a difference in in, in a language that they understand from you know from 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 their own journeys potentially. So I so the ecosystem is ripe. I mean the, the you know the, the environment is is right now for um for big impacts. And those are those are people who understand that if you give someone fifty thousand pounds. It's really nice, but you know that's not gonna that's not gonna carry them very far. 
and there's a movement from project-based funding to um, to core-based funding, which which is really supportive for for startups. So yeah, so uh, and a healthy dose of luck, right? I mean, you know, how do we secure funding? A healthy dose of luck probably probably goes with that too. Nice. And in terms of, I mean, you mentioned what Climate Policy Radar do, and in terms of how the product works, and as I understand, the, the main users are going to be researchers, policymakers. Um, so my question is about how you deliver value to your users, because I guess if something's free, sometimes it's harder to demonstrate value. Like immediately, if you if you pay for something, then you 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 want to see the value from it. Whereas if something's for free, I think it can be more difficult sometimes to make sure that value is attached to that. So I just wondered, like, are those your users? How do you make sure you are delivering value to them from a product perspective? Um, and how do you go about? Um, expanding that customer base or that user base. Sure. So let's start. Let's start with contextualizing. We are a week before launching uh, our first product when when we're having this conversation. So a lot of this, a lot of uh, a lot of our assumptions now are based on our experience from kind of the non-tech uh, supported product. So kind of understanding what people are looking for, and from uh, the from our prototype that we demoed at COP26 uh, in Glasgow uh, last year. So that was something that we are. Um, that, that's something that we'll probably make a lot of discoveries on going forward. But that's just context. Money is a good proxy for, um, I need this and therefore I'm willing to pay for it. But there's probably uh, several other proxies. For example, um, time saved. If you now want to write up who's doing what on cycle to work policies, right? So you're a civil servant, you're in the Ministry of Transportation in country of your choice, and you've been tasked with coming up with this policy and your boss says to you, all right, go and please write up, you know, who's done what on this already. So then you have to say, oh, let me go and find all of the relevant documents. Uh, I don't have much time. So let me pick some, you know, five or six countries or 10 or 15 countries if I have more time. Um, So I'll go and look up these countries. So already you're kind of uh, scraping out uh, a lot of relevant information, maybe. And then I'm going to find those PDFs and I'm going to open them and then I'm going to do Control find cycle to work, control find bicycles, control find cycle lanes or whatever. Um, what we do is um, uh, um, put together all of the relevant policy documents from all countries in one place um, and allow you to do a semantic search across the entire corpus. Things that are super obvious to us because we know how to search the internet today, right? You search um find a vegan ramen noodles near me and the internet magically knows what you want and serves up your results in a in a helpful way so that's what we're doing but for policy documents so if you think about um the time saved for people and their ability to access data that they couldn't um so time saved um could be a like an interesting proxy and that can be translated into money into money worth Um, um of course, we, we're getting into uh, like impact impact um, um, KPIs are always are always tricky, but think about um, your data cited in policy publications, your data cited um, uh, by uh, key people. When when one of my papers was um, when data from one of my papers was cited by David Cameron at the Open of the Paris Agreement. That was a nice proxy for we're doing something right, right? People, the right people are listening. Um, I think with policy, there's there's a thing that it's not just about the quantity of people uh, who are using your product; it's about who's using your product. So, um, if we want to make policy change and we want uh, decision makers to have access to better data, 
then it's them that we want uh, with the data. And of course, anyone who's supporting them throughout this process. Um, but pure quantitative metrics might not be sufficient for us here. Long answer for a really difficult problem that you know, uh, we're constantly evaluating and reevaluating how to measure our impact. And my, my next question, which you kind of started to touch on there, was actually around kind of growth strategy and which channels you see in terms of once the product is launched and it's public, where you think the, the growth will come from when it comes to adding, kind of getting more users onto the product? Would it be that visibility at big events by key people in the space or, or would it be like multiple different channels that you're looking at? So... We're, th we're obviously thinking about kind of the, you know, the traditional uh, events and um, SEO and all of these nice things. But the key things for us, and this goes, goes back to my previous answer about having the right people, is tapping into channels that are already existing and already credible. So I'm really pleased to, uh, to report that we have agreed with the London School of Economics that we will uh, white label our product to support climate laws of the world. So effectively, we will be powering climate laws, which means um, we are acquiring a user base of uh, approximately quarter million users by underpinning that channel with our technology. And that is a win-win for everyone because we are we will you know get those users and, and and they will be able to use that lse who already has this platform will be able to offer to his existing users a much more robust um, um uh solution to their to their challenges um and this this uh partnership the first of many i hope because there are many credible channels through which people seek information about policy um will really um um, create both a, like a, a credible and robust um, uh, way. So uh, a, a credible and robust kind of channel for us. And I guess that comes back to the point you made earlier about why you set up the business in the way you did. And, and it's about collaboration and partnerships over competition and, and trying to make a profit out of this core service. I really find that um, the climate tech community for profit and not for profit alike tend to be um, great collaborators. I'm part of a few forums of founders again, both on the for and the not-for-profit uh, arenas that really share uh, insights and resources and time very, very generously with each other in a way that I think is not representative of other sectors. Uh, and that is something to be applauded and encouraged. And yeah, if you're a part of that, you know, come and join the fun. There's, we're, we're doing some fun things together. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. And I guess on, on the point about how you're building the platform and the tech, it's not client specific. So could you see the plans where you could um, you know, use the platform for other to solve other problems within the world? Because once you have the ability to search and categorize and, and uh, display this, this, these documents to people, then surely that's something you could use in, in a number of different areas, not just climate policy. Absolutely. Have you been reading my uh, ambitious business plans, Craig? Um, <laughs> yeah. This is indeed something that we are very cognizant of. I mean, climate, I'm going to say something potentially controversial. Climate is not an issue. Climate is a story um, that we tell ourselves to 
kind of to aggregate a lot of a lot of uh, real life problems and challenges that we have that revolve around uh, energy and agriculture and transportation and industry and production and consumption and how we move around the world and how we eat and how we drink and whatever. And those things are indeed generic capacities. So the ability to say what kind of interventions uh, lead to uh, what results and how can we generate a helpful menu of choices, classify them and make sense of them so they support better health, better uh, well-being, that is indeed a generalizable problem. We're starting with, again, climate, which is already a, a huge kind of uh, area. And I think that very quickly we will see the application of this um, in, in other adjacent fields. And yes, uh, we, we would like to, um, um, to make this fully generalizable to, to kind of to all public policy realms. We need to remember, though, that while the technology is, um, is um, replicable and scalable, what we need to remember is that a lot of domain expertise is relevant to that. So if we are looking at, I don't know, like our, our next big challenge is, of course, is starting to kind of tap into ML stuff and, and ask ourselves, how do we identify elements in, in those texts so we can start mapping, mapping out what's going on? Can we find all the references to extreme weather events, you know, to floods and to droughts and to um, glacial melting and to things like that? How do we find those things? And then you kind of need to have the language because these are not things that are usually present in, in a kind of standard AI you know, you want to say, is this a tax or is this a standard? These are not things that are that are generalizable. So you like we kind of need to develop domain specific expertise here. But yeah, this is this is definitely the direction. Yeah, it makes sense. Exciting. And um I, I couldn't let you get away without asking as a as a startup founder, I think about one and a half years in to the business, um, I'm sure already there's been some hairy moments. Like what have been some of the key challenges along the way so far? The, the greatest thing, the greatest challenge is, of course, building a team that can deliver and can innovate and can move together to do something that I have in my head <laughs> and I've had in my head for a long time. And how do I convey that to people? How, does that even make sense from a tech point of view? N not coming from tech myself, probably the kind of the, the first moment was finding a technical partner, uh, a CTO who would be with me, confirm assumptions brainstorm how can we do that figure out what is the technical plan to do that say okay so who do we need to hire first to deliver our prototype figure out how to hire people figure out how to hire people that i don't have a clear understanding what they do with their day because i can uh, look at a policy analyst or at a researcher and know exactly if something that they're supposed to do should take two hours or two weeks but I don't know these things about data scientists or about server engineers. Figuring out how to build and, and execute something that you're not really sure how it's built and, and go on that journey of learning and also on that journey of trust, trusting uh, a CTO who you're uh, kind of working with for the first time. And I didn't have a co-founder to start with like many people do. I had to seek out one. So I think those those are kind of the... Those are the big things uh, for me. You know, the others, of course, uh, funding. Again, we were very lucky early day, or early on, but probably people is the is the most significant uh, is the most significant thing, and the thing that is constantly constantly there for me um, as a founder. So, kind of looking forwards now. So, you've got the launch in a few days. So, best of luck. <laughs> um, like next year, what what are some of the, the big milestones for Climate Policy Radar? 
our next really big thing. So we're launching our MVP in, in, in next week for um, a couple of hundred users. Um, so fairly limited launch. And we are working towards our COP27 uh, release, which is uh, early November. That will be our general availability product and coincides with us providing the, the white label for the LSE's uh, platform. So we're actually building a platform now for a quarter million users um, to start with, which is quite quite an adventure. Our main challenges now are to really get stuck onto the interesting data science problems. Uh, our MVP is basically an end-to-end, you know, data in, make some magic data out uh, on a nice user interface. All of that magic now has to be uh, amplified by uh, by really starting to do some interesting uh, data analysis and insights on the on the documents, and of course bringing in uh, many more data sources. So so right now we're we're starting to amplify on all channels all of, all of these things, and um, and that's on the business side, on the product side, and the main challenge, of course, as we are uh, we've just finished our first year of funding uh, and going into the next two. So the next twelve months have to see, have to see. Uh, our next big round of investment, um, philanthropic investment, most likely, and we are working to shine and show everyone how wonderful we are so they put their money where they should, which is obviously in our bank account. And final question on, on kind of client policy radar is um, if you achieve everything you set out to a client policy radar, what does that look like? What does the world look like? Oh, so the, um, so the fantasy looks a little bit like okay i'm going to say self-driving policies uh, as a as a play on self-driving cars self-driving cars get a lot of information from their environment on oh this is the road that you're going on and here is a ball that that a kid threw uh, onto the road and the temperature is this and it's snowing and you want to be kind of so there's a lot of data and then you need to make a decision do you move the steering wheel to the right 15 degrees or not our policies are the same. We're going down a path. There's a lot of uh, data and a lot of things happening, and we need to make good decisions. Our ability to integrate all of those data into a good decision-making process is where we're driving at. Now, it's a bit fantastical uh, in, in how we describe it, and it's important to remember that policies don't operate in a kind of in a vacuum. They always have to exist within ethical frameworks. So. Like killing little kids on the road is bad. Um, you know, that's what the self-driving car model has. So we need to know what's good and bad for us. Um, so, And there isn't a single answer for that. But the ability to process lots of information and to suggest ways forward is where we should be going with this. And we really hope to travel as, as far as possible uh, and as fast as possible along this road. And to talk to you a little bit now about your personal kind of journey as a founder i'm going to start with quite an open question is, is it what you expected because to my knowledge this is your first startup venture is it what you thought it would be um <laughs> i remember uh, a few weeks before kind of taking before hiring the, you know, the first person and i was I, I was talking to a to a close friend and and asked what am i what am i going to spend my days doing you know who's gonna who am i going to be talking to and who's going to want to talk to me? And <laughs> it's a really funny and naive question at the time. So I no, I didn't have a, a clear sight of what my days would look like. Weirdly, I really knew what, the, what our product would look like. And it really looks like that. And it's pretty, pretty remarkable. 
but I think for, for myself, uh, just understanding what things I would spend my time on and how, however much you hear about them from other people, you know, it's like parenting, you know, until you do it for yourself the first time, then getting all the advice from others is, you know, is, um, helpful, but not really, you know, you, you don't really get it. So my experience is, is completely new. Uh, really exciting. I'm having the time of my life. Uh, is that okay to say? Uh, <laughs> I am. I am having the time of my life. There are moments that are tough. There are moments that are, you know, difficult decisions and difficult kind of calls to make. Mainly on, as always, on people and you know how you know how to make everyone feel uh, valued, appreciated, uh, not treated as a resource, but as uh, like a human being that you know. And at the same time, delivering things that are impactful and, and relevant and, and, and doing that at, at pace and at, you know, at quality. And um, every founder interview, I ask them a question about how they deal with the, the kind of tough moments of the inevitable, difficult times. And, and you talked, and I normally kind of look at it from two, two perspectives, external and ex- internal. So externally, who can you go to? And you talked earlier about boards, your network. So that would make sense. I just wondered more internally, like, how do you cope? with those difficult moments um like how do you kind of step back and relax or manage to kind of separate yourself from the tough times and and work through them there are two things that i that i that i'll touch on one of them is knowing that i have the support that i have is an internal mechanism for kind of breathing into it and knowing that that i'm not alone and and will have input from others, although the decision will will end up being mine in many cases. But knowing that and knowing that those networks have delivered uh, excellent both advice and emotional support and perspective uh, in the past is something that is kind of quite grounding for me. And the second thing is, um, I don't know if you've ever had an answer like that. Uh, let's see. I really like working with a framework called nonviolent communication. And it's a framework in which you when something's going on and you have uh, an emotional response to it, you're annoyed, you're scared, you're angry, um, whatever, you then have an opportunity to ask yourself, okay, so what do I need? Or what does someone else need? So if you notice, you, know, you can also witness an emotional reaction with someone else. What do they need? What are they afraid of? And when you tap into your own needs and into somebody else's needs, then you can develop the strategies to to meet that. So for example, someone is really nervous when uh, a colleague left the team, right? And you ask, okay, so what do they need? Oh, they were actually counting on that person for mentorship or they are afraid uh, because they think that that might mean that they're next to go or something like that. I mean, I'm just, these are hypothetical. Being able to identify that need really enables you to do that. So that's a, that's a mental process I go with really regularly with, with everything. And it, it doesn't dismiss the emotion, but it situates it within like, okay, so what do we need? And then what do we do about it? And I find that really, really helpful, both for self-empathy uh, and for empathizing with others. And, and I've, I've really found it a, a, a helpful framework to, um, yeah, to, to lead me some through really difficult moments. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's great advice and a, a great outlet to have as well and those kind of situations. So I think it's hard to actually drag yourself out and think about the other parties involved. Nice. A uh, bit of an easier question for you. What's been like your proudest moment so far? Doesn't necessarily have to be related to climate policy radar, but when you look back over your career, what's been like a, one of your, your proudest moments? Can I have two? Can I be greedy? Yeah, you, yeah uh, go for it. Let's go for greedy. Let's make them work-related just for fun. I think um, kind of tying the knot now with LSE, uh, coming full circle with a project that I was hired on in 
as a research assistant in my second year of um, of my PhD, and and now kind of bringing this um, awesome technological solution to it when uh, when we've built such a big user base is really a really really feels good. The the ability to really take something from the beginning, definitely not to the end because we're you know we're in the beginning of the next phase, but. It feels like a decade of uh, like a real achievement here and being able to do that whilst leaving LSC, but not breaking ties with them, but quite the opposite, strengthening and building a partnership that is beneficial for everybody and everybody gets to do what they're good at. And I think that when I got the letter from the Chinese climate change minister that climate change laws of the world a few years ago uh, supported China in uh, developing its climate legislation, I think that was quite a moment. That was quite significant. Like we're not just putting up a database out there; we're really helping the world's largest emitter um, make make some more informed decisions about it. So, yeah, that was that was a nice moment. Big big moment. Congratulations! And then the final segment where we talk to the guest about kind of running and growing a tech for good business, which you've already kind of touched on a few things. So, uh, my first question is. Um, you know, you're, you're running a business that's um, helping solve a, a global issue. You're doing it as a not-for-profit. What do you think are some of the most important kind of factors or principles in, in how you build the business and grow it? Like are there some core foundations, principles, et cetera, that you, that you will always want to stay true to, which will allow you to stay that business you always want to be? I think I mentioned it earlier, but I'll say it again because it's worth saying the team is not a resource. The team is an end of itself. You know, we can we can group it under we can kind of frame it under intersectionality. You can't work on climate and then not uh, do good people policies, for example, taking care of people's uh, well-being, physical and mental, and making sure that they are um, not only so they will be productive for you, but because that's that itself is an end uh, of its own. And and I think that of course the bonus is that you end up with people who are happier and then people who are more committed and people who are, you know potentially also deliver more on the product. But I think that being really really firm on that is is one of the things that I would like to to think that we that we do and we do well, and we will make mistakes on it and we have made mistakes on it and we're you know but 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 attempting to learn and to improve on it is is part of the story. I think transparency is a big deal to me both as a you know, as a principle for, you know, for our data, open source and open data and all of that, you know, we're willing to expose our, uh, our code and, you know, and, you know, and all the, and all, you know, all of the patches and the hacks, somebody will see them, right? And that's okay. And we're not ashamed of that. And um, apart from obviously personal data, the processes uh, that we lead are uh, very transparent in the company as well. And those go together and are an important principle for us. And um, equity and justice probably uh, underpin this. So this, you know, from um, from diversity and hiring, not a tokenistic one, but one that really sees how this also builds better organizations and better cultures, and and for us specifically, a better product. We, we serve a global community, um, so uh, people with different life experiences, you know, can build better products because there is diversity of thought in that. Yeah, I think that'll do for now. Yeah, I think that's a pretty solid, <laughs> solid uh, selection. And then talk about hiring for a moment. Um, forgetting skill set specifically, but I just wondered, like, when it comes to hiring people in general, like, what are the key things you look out for from the people you hire into the business? So we want it all, right? Uh, we want them to be uh, excellent human beings. 
and to fit into a team that is in nature. And I, I really am so incredibly grateful for this collection of excellent humans that we've that we've managed to to bring on board, uh, generous and kind and uh, helpful and, and mission driven and impact driven. And at the same time, be really, really excellent at what they do, right? <laughs> the two cannot, uh, cannot. I mean, the two can uh, work not together, but we'd like them to work together. So we're looking, and, and of course, we're a startup, right? Everyone has to do everything, which as we grow, obviously people need to do less of everything and more of the thing that they need to do, but they need, need to be able to understand everything. They need to be able to lend a hand, you know, for things out of their comfort zone. So potentially... The people who are happy outside of their comfort zone and don't reach their panic zone too quickly, those are the types of people that um, that we're looking for. There, there's plenty. There's plenty of you out there. <laughs> there's plenty of you, excellent humans um, and excellent um, developers, data scientists, policy people, operations, communications people out there. Yeah, I don't think those have to. Those are not compromises. You don't pick one on top of the other. So yeah. And uh, you know, startups in general really struggle to hire talent, especially in the current market. It's it's very difficult. No one's finding it easy. Um, and you touched on earlier, like one of the things you think client policy radar do really well is is the environment that you've got for people in terms of being um, very open, transparent, um, equal, inclusive, diverse. Um, you look after everyone. What else do you think you do really well to compete in the current market? Bearing in mind, it's probably worth mentioning that because of the not-for-profit nature, you're not able to offer equity, which is something that startups do typically offer in like the early stages, at least to the early employees. So we pay market salaries. I mean, we don't pay kind of not-for-profit charity salaries. We 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 pay market salaries. We probably don't pay fintech or you know Facebook salaries, um, but we pay decent market salaries to people. And we're able to couple that with a really strong mission and sense of uh, agency in solving the world's greatest challenges, um, which isn't just something that you say. People actually look for that. I was one of the people looking for that. Every single person on my team was actively looking for that. There are many, many people actively looking for that. And I think it took me a little while with the equity to realize that I mean, what's the stats? 99% of uh, startups don't make it past the first year. So equity is nice, but like, what is your chance to actually see anything of that equity unless, you know, you've signed on to something uh, phenomenal? Like unicorns are unicorns. That's why they're called unicorns. And the fact that we're not able to offer equity is probably less significant than I initially had made it up to be in my imagination. Yeah, so we do that. And then we do some progressive policies. We have, we offer unlimited leave, for example, to employees. And we offer a short work week. And we offer a well-being allowance. And we offer a hybrid and flexible working. And we offer a culture in which talking about all of these things and, and together figuring out what we need is not just hypothetical, but actually a reality. And I think that's pretty attractive and it seems to have attracted the right people because we have a phenomenal team. So, um, yeah, so I think that's been working for us so far. Yeah, no, those are great advice and points. And I think um, the best thing about all of those is that they're actually not that difficult to put into place. It's just willing to build that kind of company and culture. Um, and your first couple of points, I think, were great ones in the sense of, I used to hear this a lot, like um, that people thought if you want to work for a tech for good or an impact business, you have to kind of compromise by taking a lower salary. And it's just not the case. Um, 
I run a business that only works with impact businesses and it wouldn't work if we weren't able to attract like good tech talent. And part of that is paying fair compensation. Um, and to your other point, yeah, I think more and more people are looking for to be part of a really important mission and know that the work they're doing is going to actually have a positive impact in some way. So, um, yeah, all makes sense. Uh, last couple of questions. Um, in terms of growth to date, um, I think uh, the other thing founders struggle with is like, how do they hire? Like, when do you try and focus your efforts on direct hiring, advertising versus like, when do you pull the trigger and, and start using recruiters? Um, what, what's been your kind of um, policy on that so far? So when we uh, when I started, the first uh, four or five hires we did by ourselves until we realized that it was taking up a ridiculous amount of time and energy. And that we probably needed some professional support on that. I'm saying we because after the first hire, it was a we, obviously. Those uh, those first recruits are still with us, so they're excellent people. I mean, they're uh, <laughs> uh, but as we needed to hire three, four, or five more people, turning to uh, turning to a recruiter at a time where we were already releasing prototype and needing to do quite a few things uh, in parallel was no long no longer felt feasible. It, would, it felt like it had a price that was high enough to be replaced by the price of recruiting, which is, is not a low price. So, but that felt like the right moment to make that transition. I think tech hires are, um, so tech hires, we've done the last ones through a recruiter, through you and the policy recruits, uh, which are more domain, domain specific, um, are more likely to go through networks. I think that's, um, because they're more specialized kind of a generic, um, a generic search for climate policy experts is unlikely to yield something by a recruiter unless they're an expert on climate policy people. So so that's how we've gone about it. Yeah. And um, going back to some of the direct hiring you did, obviously referrals in your network are like the number one I'd always advise people to exhaust first. In terms of some of the tools you used, I know they were kind of time costly, um, but you did make some hires through them. Do you remember which avenues you went down? Like, was that LinkedIn advertising? Was that Was that like direct hiring platforms like Cord or was it? Something else that you did that worked well? Yeah, we did a, we did a bunch of those. Um, for tech hires, we ended up on we ended up on Cord. Our Twitter networks were kind of um, uh, helpful for that because um, we were plugged into the right communities. So word of mouth, and then uh, you know people posted on on a C, you know on the CTO um, a network, and people posted here and there. Uh, work on climate, uh, Slack, and and climate AI, and there's there's a bunch of kind of specializing um, uh, specializing for for that. So um, so that's what we went for. Uh, we did use Cord, and we did use LinkedIn, and we used Otta a little bit, and we used yeah, here and there, and, and I can't even remember through which channels like the the two or three people that came that way came through probably a combination of, of those cool and then finally um if someone's listening to this episode and would be interested in working at climate policy Red or just following your journey like where's the best place for them to either um follow yourself or um kind of get in touch with with the team sure uh, find us on uh twitter linkedin uh, jobs at climatepolicyradar.org climatepolicyradar.org in general yeah everything is there nice well that's everything Michal thank you so much for chatting to us today it's been much appreciated so much for having me Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. 
were just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril Al-Sahimi and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.